Tonight, straight from the source. It's language that echoes that of Hitler and Mussolini. But tonight, Donald Trump's campaign is defending how he called his political opponents vermin. Plus, CNN is on the ground inside Gaza, getting a first-hand look at the tunnels that are used by Hamas. As Israeli forces are closing in, President Biden says that hospitals in Gaza, quote, must be protected. And for the first time in U.S. history, the U.S. Supreme Court has adopted a code of conduct with one major question left unanswered. Who exactly will enforce it? I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. It is becoming clearer by the day what a second term for Donald Trump would center around. Revenge, or as he often puts it, retribution. He's spelling it out clearly for us on camera, warning that it's his political opponents, he says, who are the most dangerous threat facing the United States today. Not China or Russia or North Korea, his opponents. For someone who has long used similar language to authoritarians and fascists, this weekend in New Hampshire, Trump took things a step further. We will root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country. The threat from outside forces is far less sinister, dangerous, and grave than the threat from within. You can see there, Trump appears to be reading from the prompter, not ad-libbing those remarks, where he vowed to root out his political opponents like vermin. He also posted the same language on social media, making it clear he meant it. The Biden campaign says that the former president and potentially Biden's opponent in 2024 is parroting the autocratic language of Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini. I should note that Hitler's biographer once quoted the Nazi dictator as saying, should I not also have the right to eliminate millions of an inferior race that multiplies like vermin? One person who isn't condemning Trump's words, the chairwoman of the Republican Party. I'm not going to talk about candidates that are in a contested primary. I am not going to comment on candidates and their campaign messaging. I should note Trump's campaign is pushing back on these comparisons to Hitler and Mussolini, doubling down, saying that those remarks, those who try to make that ridiculous assertion, are clearly snowflakes grasping for anything. Their entire existence will be crushed when President Trump returns to the White House. The spokesperson who put that statement out later clarified and said that he meant to say, quote, sad, miserable existence instead of their entire existence. This isn't just language, by the way. There's been a ton of reporting about plans that are underway for a second Trump term, including from The New York Times, which says tonight that Trump is plotting mass detention and the deportation of undocumented immigrants should he regain power. Trump promised last week to conduct, quote, the largest domestic deportation operation in American history. And not long ago, he said that undocumented immigrants were poisoning the blood of the country. It is a very sad thing for our country. Uh, it's poisoning the blood of our country. I'm joined now by Maggie Haberman from The New York Times. I, you've covered Donald Trump for a long time. You wrote a book on him. What did you make of the comments in New Hampshire on Saturday night? 
What was striking to me was actually not him reading from the prompter about enemies within, because he actually has said that before, but vermin was new, and the dehumanizing language that he is increasingly willing to use, poisoning the blood of the country, I should note, also has echoes of fascists, and and that is a a new uh, piece that he has added to his repertoire about immigrants. So I think the language which has been you know, very, very, uh, uh, you know, fascist invoking or at least echoes of fascists uh, in history for a long time has become much more dramatic and much more severe in recent weeks. Uh, And to your point, he's not hiding any of it. What's striking to me, too, is when his campaign tries to insist he's not really saying what he's saying. So as you note, they push back on what he said, but they push back on it with a quote that talks about crushing his opponents. And I can see where they think they're being clever and that they're suggesting this is some kind of a liberal troll. That's not what they said. Yeah, they said crush their entire existence. existence. But Stephen Chung, the spokesperson, later said that's not what he meant to say, but it was something that he typed out and said to reporters. And it's something that Trump said on camera. When you talk about how the progression in Trump's language, because Mm -hmm. he has long used, you know, Mm -hmm. language of authoritarians and fascists, Mm -hmm. why do you think it's... How is it? Why is it progressing the way that it is now? Why is he now saying, does he feel comfortable calling his political opponents vermin? I think for a couple of reasons. I think, number one, he, he truly does feel as if he has somehow been uh, unleashed by the existence of these indictments against him. I think that he sees this as giving him free license to say what he wants. But this is, you know, the Donald Trump who says things like this is the Donald Trump who has always been there. Now, that Donald Trump was much better at uh, masking himself behind a more socially acceptable contemporary version of a developer in New York or a reality television star or a media figure. Um, But this is who he is. And and remember, things that we're seeing, like him threatening to uh, go after political opponents uh, in terms of investigations or whatever, way he means it when he gets back into office. This is something we've learned since that he did a lot more when he was in office than people realized. We know that there were efforts to investigate John Kerry. Uh, There were efforts to investigate Hillary Clinton. There There were all kinds of efforts to go after people. He also talked about a special counsel against Hillary Clinton in 2016. This is who he is. And now he, though, wants to investigate the people who worked for him, people like John Kelly and Jim Mattis. And uh, when we look at the General Milley, who just left the Joint Chiefs of Staff, I mean, he wants to go after people that actually worked for him. I don't have, I personally don't have reporting on that. But that having been said, uh, you know, one of the things about Donald Trump is that he never rules out anything. You know this as well as anybody, which means that everything is on the table. And then his folks say, well, it doesn't, he didn't really say it. Uh, someone else said it. If he doesn't, if he, if he isn't open to these ideas, then he is perfectly capable of saying that. And I think that, you know, this is not just theoretical. You've done a lot of the reporting on what a second Trump term would look like. And the latest one was on what his immigration plans would be. Obviously, that was one of his biggest issues that he rode into office on in 2016. What would that look like if he were reelected based on what you've heard? Yeah, so a couple of things. He, as you noted, has been pretty direct about that. He said in a speech that he wanted to conduct the largest uh, deportate, mass deportation operation uh, in the country that the country has seen and that he's using a, an Eisenhower era uh, model with a, a racist name, Operation Wetback, uh, as what he wanted to had in, had in mind. Which was actually um, the name of an immigration program. Yes, that was the name of the immigration program under Eisenhower. That is, that is what he wants to emulate here or something with that in in mind. And when we approached, Charlie Savage, Jonathan Swan, and I approached the Trump campaign about 
Trump's immigration plan. They referred us to Stephen Miller, uh, who is not formally advising the campaign, but as you know as well as I do, is quite close to Trump, was the architect of his immigration policy in the White House uh, and is now working on finding lawyers for a, a future Republican administration. And so they laid out, uh, and, and various people we spoke to laid out, a very detailed plan that would involve uh, camps on massive open land to enable this expedited removal and mass deportation. They talk about invoking all kinds of different laws that would enable them to get around existing systems. They talk about reestablishing Title 42, which was used during COVID as a protocol and which was ke initially kept in place by President Biden, uh, and this time for some kind of general illness. And so it's very specific. And this is something that, you know, those of us who have seen Stephen Miller around a long time, this is something Stephen Miller's pretty passionate about, Donald Trump uh, kicked off his campaign with uh, demagoguery and uh, demagoguing immigrants and talking about Mexicans as rapists. So none of this is hugely surprising. Okay, but so I was reading this story yesterday in the New York Times. Stephen Miller is on the record with you. Mm -hmm. You noted in the story that the Trump campaign referred you to Correct. Stephen Miller. So how do we explain this statement tonight that we're getting from the two people who are running Trump's campaign right. saying that all of these stories about what a second term would look like, they say are... Uh, purely speculative and theoretical and that any personnel list, policy agendas, or government plans published anywhere are merely suggestions. So we get to that by the basic fact that they are very upset by our stories, by others and a number of outlets. Um, and we've been working on these stories since June uh, about what Trump 2025 would look like that, that invoke these groups, but not only these groups, and that they have sort of lost, you know, in their minds control of it. And they are angry at, at seeing groups get credit for things and pieces that they're working on and so forth. But to your point, a lot of this is tr not just Trump's own mouth, but people who the Trump campaign is referring reporters to. So this is what... So why are they putting out this statement Well, tonight? I assume because I think they think that what Trump is actually saying is problematic for him in a general election, which seems more like a them problem than the things we're writing about problem. Can I just, I want to read one line that stood out to me from your piece on the on immigration. You mm -hmm. said that part of what they're planned for is for U.S. consular officials abroad will be directed to expand ideological screening mm -hmm. of visa applicants to block people that the Trump administration considers to have undesirable attitudes. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, they are planning for, at least as they describe it, whether this would be doable or not and how much, we, we note all of this is going to get challenged legally, particularly birthright citizenship and attempts to end it. But yes, they are going to try to impose a broader ideological screen to try to weed people out. Whether they will be able to successfully do that or not, I don't know. But they are saying that, and this is being discussed at a time when there are obviously mass protests about global events. So, And I mean, uh, the staffing of a Trump term, I think what's important for people to remember when you talked about how there was so many more things that he tried to do that he didn't mm -hmm. do, that's because there were people like General Kelly, like Mark Esper, others who kind of basically stood in the way Maybe not enough for some people, but they did block some of the things that he wanted to do. Well, and at the time, and you know this as well as anybody, Trump is very, very responsive and reactive to media coverage. So, for instance, when they were doing the family separation policy, which they will not say what's going to happen with that. Trump at, noted with you at the town hall that that's, you know, he would not rule that out. Um, but he was very reactive to the negative coverage of it. And that was used to push him away from it in 2018. And that worked. I don't know that he will be as responsive to headlines as he once was just because of everything else engulfing him. Maggie Haberman, great reporting. Thank, Thank you. you. Up next, we have a firsthand look at the widespread destruction on the ground in Gaza. CNN's Nick Robertson says in his 30 years of war reporting, he has never seen anything like it. We'll show you it next. 
I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about this stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Tonight, CNN has an exclusive look on the ground inside of Gaza. My colleague Nick Robertson embedded with Israeli Defense Forces as they conducted an operation against Hamas next to a hospital in Gaza City. CNN reported from Gaza under the IDF's escort at all times. I should note, CNN did not submit its script or footage to the IDF and has retained complete editorial control over the final report. This is from Nick Robertson. Driving into Gaza with the Israeli forces. It's a war zone. The conditions of our access only show officers. No faces of soldiers and don't show sensitive equipment. We are passing mile after mile of destruction. Buildings blown, collapsed, nothing untouched by the fury of Israel's hunt for Hamas. Streets here crushed back to sand. Shops, everything that we see, no sign of any civilians here and the soldiers have been telling us that even inside the stores they've been finding things like rocket propelled grenades ready to use against them as they were advancing through this area. A few miles in we pull up at a command post. Soldiers living in blown apartment buildings. Every building I'm looking at here wherever you turn it's destroyed, it's shot up. Hard to imagine how civilians endured the bombardment here. Our next journey, much deeper into Gaza, and it's about to get dangerous. The troops are going in in the jeeps, but this is what we're gonna travel in, this armored vehicle here. We arrive a hundred meters from a battle with Hamas. Tanks blasting targets in nearby buildings. The IDF's top spokesperson waiting for us. We're now conducting an operation inside Gaza next to Rantisi Hospital. Israel is facing massive international pressure over the destruction of homes, the shockingly high civilian death toll, and in the last few days, over its apparently heavy-handed tactics at hospitals. We are searching the tunnel with the bulldozers to reveal the tunnels that we suspect that are underneath the hospital. Gari has brought us here to show the connection he says exists between Hamas and the Rentisi Children's Hospital. We're now here in an area between a hospital, a school and a terrorist house. A Hamas commander, he says, lived there. He points out the solar panels on the roof. This is a tunnel that was slided like this, the floor. You can see here. This is the ladder going you down. You see the yeah. ladder going down. I yeah. see the ladder going down. Okay, yeah. this is a 20 meter tunnel. And look at here. Look at the look at the look at the panel. Be careful yeah. here. But look down here. The, the cables are going down to the tunnel. Okay? 
So they're hardwired into for the what tunnel. I wanted to show you the solar panels on the terrace house provide electricity directly to the tunnel. We've entered, we've entered a robot inside the tunnel and the robot saw a massive door, a door that is on the direction of the hospital. We're in what is an active fire zone here. You can hear the small arms fire. The IDF say they're still clearing this area out. We're getting down here, just taking a bit of cover because they say we're still taking fire. But over here, we were able to smell what smelled like rotting flesh, bodies perhaps buried underneath the rubble. No, don't go up, hey. Don't expose yourself. As we move off to the hospital, a hundred meters away, we're still taking fire. We're still conducting an operation. Operation conducted by our special unit. The Israeli Navy SEALs are researching the hospital. Hagari later tells us he took a big risk bringing us into such a combat zone. It is clear he wants this story told. We're searching here to see the connection of the tunnel to the hospital, okay? Don't, don't fall here. We're so this searching. is where the connection... We are looking for the connection. As we finally reach the hospital, it is already getting dark. A huge hole has been blasted through the walls into the basement. Why is the hospital so damaged? We'll talk... Why is the hospital so, so damaged, damaged like this? I'll explain. Yeah. It's yeah. an important yeah. question. Yeah, it is. We came to this hospital five days ago. There were still patients inside the hospital. We did not enter into the hospital. He claims since then, all patients were evacuated by hospital staff. We assist this evacuation, of course, to make it a safe pass for all the patients in the hospital. We do not know that the hospital is entirely clean. We do not know. We only entered to this area which was suspected because we were being fired. Gari leads us through a warren of basement corridors to this room. This was the armory, okay? This was the Hamas armory. Yeah. He shows us a few rusting guns and some explosives. Says he can show us evidence they found a lot more. But this is what they made safe for our visit. These guns alone have potentially huge implications for Gaza's hospitals and Israel's apparent push to take control of them. The International Committee for the Red Cross say that hospitals are given special protection under international humanitarian law in a time of war. But if militants store weapons there or use them as a base of fire, then that protection falls away. In other rooms, he shows us a motorbike with a bullet hole in it that he suspects was used by Hamas attackers October 7th. And nearby, possible evidence hostages could have been held here. We are now in the basement in the same area, yards from the motorcycle. We see her a chair, we see her a rope. We see her, a woman's clothes or a woman's something covering woman. She think this, a woman was tied up in this chair. This is an assumption going to be checked by DNA. More evidence, Hagari says, points towards Hamas and possible hostage presence below the hospital. This is a guarding list. Every terrorist has his own shift. In this room, he says, a guard list that begins October 7th, ends November 3rd, not long before the hospital was evacuated. And on the other side of the room... This is a knife, right? Yeah, actually, I haven't seen it until now. What does it tell you? I, 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 don't, want, I don't want to think about it. But, but, I, but Israel does not make assumptions. A forensic team will come here 
and check the evidence. I think there is no other answer by, by holding hostages here in this room. Yeah. And by bringing us here to this hospital and showing us the connection that you believe exists between the terrorists and the possibly hostages, what does this say about the other hospitals here in Gaza? We asked him to uh, evacuate or we assist our help because he asked us, the pediatric, uh, uh, the, the babies, to take them out. We offered our help. We even brought incubators to, uh, to who will take them. The Red, the Red Cross, Egypt, who will take them? But cynically, Shifa Hospital is known by facts, by intelligence, to be a terrorist hub. And also, it's suspicious also in holding hostages. This is the best shelter for the terror war machine of Hamas. But the hospital authorities said they have no knowledge of Hamas or other groups inside the hospitals. Is that possible? I think it's not possible for an hospital to have this kind of an infrastructure, like we saw here, and to build this kind of an infrastructure in a basement that was probably ready before for getting hostages after uh, the 7th of October massacre. And we knew the terrorists were here. We How knew. Did you know? We knew by intelligence and also we got some fire from this area. From this area? This from this area. And, and we were right to fire because what we found an armory. And if one of our guys would have died from an explosive or a grenade, it's horrible. Hamas using this war machine of hospitals in a barbaric way. It's a war crime. It's an international crime. Not just as a war machine, but holding hostages in a children's hospital. But so much damage all around here. Yeah, there is damage all around here because Hamas made it impossible for us to fight him. He built all this infrastructure in tunnels and in hospitals around areas populated. As we exit the hospital, it is already dark. We're just getting ready to leave right now. The firefight still going on, still intense. Bullets fired, explosions going on up the street there. This war and the controversies surrounding it far from resolved. Nick Robertson, CNN, Gaza. It is so rare to get a look like that inside of Gaza. Robert, Nick Robertson, thank you for that. And we'll have more on Israel's war against Hamas, including an interview with a top Israeli official coming up. But first, here in New York, he spent more than three hours praising his father as an artist. He even made a joke about committing perjury. Donald Trump Jr. is back on the witness stand today in the New York civil fraud trial. We'll tell you what he said next. Donald Trump Jr. was back in a New York City courtroom today. This time, he was testifying as the first witness for his father's defense. He used his time on the stand to hype up his father's business acumen, calling the former president, quote, an artist and a visionary with real estate. Of course, at the heart of this, the $250 million civil fraud trial is going to determine the future of his family's business here in New York. I'm joined now by former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig and former Trump White House communications director Alyssa Farrah Griffin. Ellie, I mean, this is obviously the defense, so it's not surprising. But I mean, how does the judge take him calling Trump Tower a genius, Mar-a-Lago one of the few American castles that we have? How does that does that work with the judge? No, it's all irrelevant. This was a three hour infomercial. I mean, <laughs> I was actually surprised by the degree to which this was irrelevant. The judge indulged them. The judge said early on when there was an objection from the AG's office, the judge said, I'm just going to let him go. You had six weeks, AG, to put on your case. Let him talk. But ultimately, it's up to the judge. The judge can filter it. If there was a jury there, by the way, I don't think Donald Trump Jr. would have been allowed to do one-tenth of Why what not? he did to Because it's completely irrelevant, because it's just self-congratulatory. It's just glossy photos and, 
and sort of, you know, bowing down to, to the majesty of the Trump organization. It doesn't bear on the issues in this case, the valuations, who was involved in preparing the financial statement. So if there was a jury, judge would have cut out most of that testimony. But I think his attitude was like, let him go and, and we'll move on. Well, and Donald Trump wasn't actually in the courtroom today. He is expected to potentially be there again soon. But Alyssa, what did you glean from that, seeing how, I mean, there's a reason he talked about it like he, that. He certainly seemed to know that his father would be watching or would be paying attention to the readout from the courtroom. I, it felt like a performance, basically, to hype the business and to hype his father. And after he left the courtroom, he gave these remarks where he essentially talked about Donald Trump is going to rebuild the New York skyline, as though, for some reason, we don't have a New York skyline right now. Um, it, it just underscores this, this trial in particular has become basically a PR campaign uh, for the Trump team. They know that there's no winning in any effective sense for them, so it's really just about how can we look defiant when we need to, look strong when we need to, and convey ourselves as people who are being, you know, unfairly subjected to a witch hunt. And that's what we saw again. I also am curious what you made of something that we watched today. That's this video, parts of it have been released, of Jenna Ellis, a former Trump attorney who just recently, uh, of course, pleaded, took a guilty plea in the state of Georgia in that case. She was on camera talking about what Dan Scavino, of course, a Trump, close Trump ally who ran his social media, had to say uh, about whether or not Trump could actually win the election. He said um, to me in a kind of excited tone, well, we don't care and we're not going to leave. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, the boss, meaning President Trump, and everyone understood the boss. Um, that's what we all called him. Um, he said the boss uh, is not going to leave under any circumstances. We are just going to stay in power. A pretty remarkable statement from Jenna Ellis, who's one of President Trump's chief attorneys at that time. It uh, nearly identically mirrors something that then Chief of White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows said to me on, I believe it was December 3rd of 2020. Uh, I was in a meeting, another aide was present uh, in the chief's office, and he said, I was saying that I plan to resign the next day. And he said, what if I told you we wouldn't be leaving office? We're not going to be leaving office. I shared that with federal investigators. I shared that with the congressional uh, investigation. But it clearly shows Dan Scavino, yes, did run the Twitter account. He's also a White House deputy chief of staff at that time and probably one of the closest allies of the president, somebody who sat right outside of his office in the Oval, uh, right outside of the Oval Office. It shows that at the senior most tier of the White House, there was a coordinated decision to potentially try to not leave power. That's terrifying. And by the way, Jenna Ellis was a diehard loyalist up until the point that her attorneys basically got to her and said, ma'am, you've got to take a plea deal. Because as recently as a few months ago, she was still rooting for Team Trump. She was still championing him. So this is a remarkable revelation. And then he didn't pay her legal fees, which she also publicly was not happy about. Trump's counsel in Georgia, Steve Sadow, said that that was absolutely meaningless, that quote from Jenna Ellis, is it? No, I think it, it's meaningful. I actually think Jenna Ellis is emerging as a more promising potential witness for prosecutors than Sidney Powell, precisely for the reasons Alyssa identifies. Jenna Ellis, it seems, has made an actual break from the Trump people. And during her plea, she said, I at least now acknowledge that these lies we were spreading about election fraud were in fact lies. Sidney Powell has done no such thing. Since she took her plea, Sidney Powell is back out there spewing this election lie garbage. And for that reason, I do not think Sidney Powell is at all a viable witness. I don't think there's any chance the DA or any prosecutor ever calls 
uh, Sidney Powell. Jenna Ellis, though, could be a different story. Do you think well, Trump will end up wishing he had paid for Jenna Ellis' legal fees? Uh, could be. A lot of times the failure to pay legal fees is the straw that, that breaks the back and, and sends someone over to the other side, yeah. Well, and frankly, one of the very trivial reasons, reasons he didn't was that she'd come out and endorse Ron DeSantis in the primary. <laughs> so she stayed very loyal to Donald Trump, continued to spout the election lies, but did ultimately say Ron DeSantis was the better choice for the future. And it's believed by people in Trump world that's why he didn't offer to pay her legal bills. You know what stood out to me is just being able to see that clip there of Jenna Ellis and what she said. Obviously, we know there's a lot more to come. That's in Georgia. But there is an argument going on right now in the federal case in Washington with uh, the special counsel, Jack Smith, that about cameras being inside the courtroom and the Trump campaign arguing for it. They're arguing against it. It doesn't seem likely, but what do you make? No, there's almost no chance that we will see cameras inside the courtroom. I'll, I'll make a confession. If you had asked me this a few years ago when I was a prosecutor, I would have said, absolutely not. I don't want it. I don't want to encourage grandstanding. Now I feel 180 degrees different, partially because we're here now and working in media, but also because the Constitution ensures the right to a speedy and public trial. And the fact that we're not using technology to take advantage of that, I think, is a real miss. I will say this. Trump is it's a smart move tactically because yeah. now Trump gets to say, I wanted you American people to see this. And you know who didn't want you to see it? The Justice Department. It's a smart move for him. Yeah, they're saying that's because they believe the Trump team would make it look like a circus. Yeah. Ellie Honig, Alyssa Fair Griffin, thank you both as always. Up next, we're going to speak with a senior advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu. His response to what we heard from the Oval Office today calls for hospitals in Gaza to be protected. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Tonight, CNN got an inside look at a children's hospital inside Gaza City where the IDF found tunnels that it says Hamas has been using. The IDF is also accusing Hamas of having a command complex beneath the Al-Shifa hospital, the largest one inside of Gaza. The medical director there is describing catastrophic conditions that are happening. Premature babies being wrapped in foil, placed next to hot water just so they can stay warm. As the fighting outside the hospital is intensifying, President Biden issued this message today. And it's my hope and expectation that uh, there will be uh, less intrusive action relative to the hospital. The hospital must be protected. And joining me now is Mark Regev, senior advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu and the former Israeli ambassador to the United Kingdom. Mr. Regev, thank you for being here. President Biden just told reporters that he believes hospitals in Gaza must be protected. Is Israel preparing to strike the Al-Shifa hospital or, or to go inside of it? No, hospitals are protected sites. We don't target hospitals and we don't target patients and doctors. That's obvious. That, uh, that's part of uh, our creed. What is a situation and what is a legitimate target is the Hamas military infrastructure around and under the hospital. And we have to take them out as surgically as we can without causing damage to the hospital, if at all possible, and to avoid harming the people inside. 
Okay, so Israel will not strike the Al-Shifa hospital. Is that correct? We won't target hospitals. We target Hamas. What about the thousands of people that are sheltering around that hospital complex? I mean, you can see from the imagery that there are still civilians that are sheltering outside that hospital. Well, the the good thing is the overwhelming majority of civilians have heeded our advice and have uh, fled the area. We, We asked people about a month ago already to start relocating to the south. And they have done so in their hundreds of thousands. The number of people left there is, is a very small group. And uh, we will still, of course, distinguish between combatants, Hamas, who are our enemy, and we will target, and between the innocent civilians and make a maximum effort, as I said a moment ago, to be as surgical as is possible in a very complex uh, combat situation. The prime minister said that Israel offered this hospital fuel, but what we are hearing from from medical staff is that they're too scared to basically go outside to get it because they're they're fearful that Israel will fire on them. Are you guaranteeing that for people who go outside to get the fuel that they will be safe? 100%. We can guarantee that. I can't guarantee that Hamas won't uh, fire upon them, but they, from our point of view, we bought the fuel to about uh, 200, 250 yards from the hospital. And we said, come and pick it up uh, because this was enough fuel for generators specifically uh, for, the, uh, for the babies uh, who needed for the incubators. And, and we were trying to say, let's avoid a crisis inside the hospital. We bought the fuel, but as far as we understand, the fuel is still sitting outside the hospital. Hamas has forbidden hospital staff from going and picking it up. Well, some hospital staff had said it, it wasn't enough fuel, that it would have only provided about half an hour's worth of, of power and electricity. Caitlin, that's the, 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 the fuel was for the incubators, uh, for, the, uh, for the babies, and there's more than enough there. And if they run out, we'll supply more. You mentioned those babies. There are premature babies, among other patients that are still at this hospital, You talked about these surgical operations that Israel is going to be doing around that hospital, given you believe Hamas is operating from underneath it. But before Israel does whatever it is going to do around Al-Shifa Hospital, will it help facilitate the transfer of those those children, those preemie babies and the other patients first? We've already said that we're willing to do so. We've said that we will facilitate the transfer of people, uh, uh, patients, and if they need to be in ambulances, they can be in ambulances. But we have to understand what's going on here. This is a Hamas-made humanitarian crisis because we provided fuel for the incubators for the babies and we've suggested ambulances and a way out to, to move people out. And then Hamas has said no to any humanitarian solution. They close it off. They want pictures that will put international pressure on Israel to cease our military operation against them. And from their point of view, they're trying to be smart because we're hitting them hard. We're destroying their military machine. They want us to stop. And so they're holding hostage everyone in that hospital, preventing humanitarian uh, assistance, preventing the fuel, preventing the relocation of people in ambulances, just so they can try to galvanize international pressure on Israel to stop striking against their military machine. And what they're doing, of course, is is a war crime patron. Is Israel willing, how do you conduct your operation if there are still children inside that hospital, premature children who right now are, are struggling to, to stay alive based on the accounts that we've heard. So I'm not sure, you know, what else we can do. We provided fuel for the incubators so they could be safely inside the hospital for the time being. And we've provided, we're willing to facilitate the ambulances to transfer them out of the hospital if they choose to leave, which is obviously the best solution. And both of those uh, uh, ideas Hamas has vetoed. 
But what and if they're too sick the to problem. leave? There are solutions, but Hamas is deliberately putting babies in danger for their own propaganda purposes. But, Caitlin, you shouldn't be surprised. How did they butcher Israeli babies when they crossed the, bo uh, the border on October 7th? I saw pictures of Israeli babies burnt to a cinder. I saw pictures of Israeli babies that were shot in their cots with multiple bullet wounds uh, uh, from machine gun fire in their cots. And, of course, you know that our babies were also kidnapped by Hamas. Who kidnaps babies? Who shoots babies? So we should have no uh, qualms whatsoever, no, no problem in understanding that Hamas is willing also to sacrifice Palestinian babies for its crazy, radical extremist agenda. I've seen that footage as well, and no one is defending Hamas here. But my question is, what about the children who are inside the Al-Shifa hospital right now? And will you guarantee their safety first before Israel does whatever it is going to do, whatever operation you do have planned around the Al-Shifa hospital? We will make every effort. And in accordance to international law, we distinguish between combatants, that's the Hamas terrorists who are our target, and non-combatants who are civilians. And we, we will be as surgical as is humanly possible. It's very difficult, I admit that, Caitlin, because you've got a situation where Hamas is deliberately abusing a humanitarian site, a, a site that is, uh, according to all the wars of, of armed conflict, you're not supposed to put your arms in a hospital. They're deliberately holding the, the patients there, the babies, the medical staff, as hostages to protect their military machine, which is right under the hospital. It's complex. It's difficult. But if any finger of blame should be pointed, it must be at Hamas that is deliberately abused the hospital, putting its military machine deliberately. It's premeditated crime. They've deliberately built their military machine, their command and control, their network of tunnels that lead to rocket launching sites and arms depots and other underground uh, uh, fortresses. They've deliberately built all that under a hospital. Ambassador Mark Regev, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. Up next here at home, the Supreme Court now has an ethics code following months of revelations about justices accepting lavish gifts and big travel perks. The key question still is, who will police this self-imposed code? Tonight, the Supreme Court is putting new ethics rules in place after months of reports about justices flying on private jets, vacationing on billionaires' yachts, all nine justices have now signed on to a 14-page code of conduct governing gifts, fundraising, and also finances. Pressure had been building on them to do this, especially because of reports that Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas had failed to disclose luxury vacations that were paid for by the conservative billionaire and donor Harlan Crow. But the new code of conduct leaves a lot of unanswered questions. So hopefully here to answer this is Supreme Court expert and law professor at the University of Texas, Steve Vladek. Steve, so great to have you on this. Uh, is it clear to you who is going to enforce this ethics code? I mean, I think the only thing that's clear, Caitlin, is that the justices are expecting that they will enforce it themselves, um, which, of course, raises the time old question, who watches the watchers? And so I think part of the issue with today's development is we have these rules that at least look somewhat reasonable on paper, but part of the issue with the prior behavior is rules that weren't followed. How are we gonna know going forward that these rules are being followed? What are the consequences going to be if and when the justices don't follow them? I mean, that's the what's so murky about this. And when you know you look at this on the first page, they talk about the, the recent questionable, questionable behavior from some of the justices. I think the question that I have is, if this code had been in place 10 years ago, 
Would we have known more about trips like the ones that Justice Clarence Thomas took uh, in advance, or would we still have had to learn about that from reporting like we did? I mean, I think part of the problem is that there's no you know, mechanism in these new rules to find out what the justices have done to publicize instances in which the justices cross the line, to make examples out of justices, even when the rules are clear and they break them. And so, Caitlin, I think what, what this really does is this kicks the ball almost squarely back to Congress, um, which even if it can't actually discipline the justices directly, has lots of levers it can pull to try to actually monitor compliance with these rules, to push the court to appoint someone, say an inspector general, who might monitor compliance with the rules and then report to Congress and to us, the public, when those rules are complied with. But I think this is the point, like this is a necessary step on the justice's part. It is not remotely a sufficient one because we still have this question going forward of how these rules are gonna be enforced and by whom. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's gonna do much to bolster that public confidence that the Supreme Court is so clearly lacking. Now, Steve Laddick, a lot of questions going forward, but thank you for joining with what we do know about this new ethics code. Thank you. Up next, a Secret Service agent in Washington firing his weapon while protecting a member of the Biden family. The details of that ahead. Tonight, we're learning more about a shooting over the weekend that involved a Secret Service agent who's assigned to protect President Biden's granddaughter, Naomi. A spokesperson for the Secret Service says that this agent shot at possibly three people who were trying to break into a parked government car in Georgetown in Washington, D.C. I should note no one was hit. There was no threat, according to the Secret Service, to any of those protectees who have that security detail. But all of the su suspects took off in a red car and are still being searched for tonight. The incident is now under investigation by the Metropolitan Police Department and its Internal Affairs Division. I should note, all of this comes amid an uptick of crime in the nation's capital. I lived there for eight years. Right now, motor vehicle theft is up 98% in just the last year alone. That's according to D.C. police. We'll stay on top of that story and continue to monitor it. I want to thank you so much for joining us tonight. CNN News Night with Abby Phillips starts right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.